Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Hey, so this morning we have a special treat for everyone, especially for me. One of the greatest gifts of a pastor is when he has a a break from preaching for a week. Isn't that nice? I'm telling you, it is a great week when he cannot have a sermon to prepare, but rather study and prepare and plan for other things. Because this week we're going to have a guest preacher. Uh, His name is Alan Springer, and he's actually a member of our church. Let me tell you a little bit about, we're not clapping yet. We'll get there in a second. Miles, you, let's clap. Go ahead, let's clap for him. It's already more excited than if I was preaching. I don't know what to say about that. All right, so here's a little bit about Alan. Give his little bio. He has an MDiv from Columbia International University. He's been in ministry for about 20 years. He served eight years as a senior pastor. He's been a senior pastor, discipleship pastor, youth pastor. He's had a lot of different jobs in ministry, hasn't he? Yeah. Hospital chaplain, and currently he's chaplain and bereavement counselor with a hospice uh, with, with hospice. So he has a lot of experience. I'm looking forward to hearing him teach and, and preach this morning. And so as we welcome up, let's give him another round of applause as he comes up, because it's always awkward when that happens. Um, having been a lead pastor, I can honestly say one of the greatest joys for me was always being able to just enjoy being under the Word, as opposed to having to be ready to present the Word. Uh, This morning, I've got a particular joy in that the subject matter that uh, I've been given to preach is very near and dear to my heart. We're um, looking at Richard Foster's book through a mini-series as a church right now on the spiritual disciplines. Last week, Brian did just a great job giving us an intro to it. I don't remember when I first was exposed to Foster's uh, work, but it was probably in my early 20s. But it was about 12 years ago that I came to actually understand it a little bit more and believe that there was something powerful in this. And it didn't come through a book, it came through a man. And so I want to share a little bit about this man. His name is Kent. Kent was a mostly retired electrical engineer. You would never know that to meet him. He was just a very... um, unassuming man, wore plain clothes, was just naturally present in the church, but he was almost seldom um, in a place where he would be standing up doing the main teaching. He was a very quiet man. He and his wife were regularly um, serving either in children's ministry or teaching the teenagers. They were just this people that were, like, if you met them, you wouldn't think a whole lot about them. They drove an old minivan. They were soft-spoken. But as I got to know Kent, I realized that this soft-spoken, unassuming guy was passionate for Jesus. And as I got to talk with him and got to know him, I realized this man is in touch with some things that I have only observed from afar and I long for more of in my life. 
And as I spent more time with him, I learned he would, every week he'd be like, oh, you should read this. And he would recommend Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which Brian and I were just talking about Bonhoeffer this morning. He would encourage me to read things like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, these deep um, theologians, and, and, but not really theologians, very practical in many respects when it comes to what does it actually mean to follow Christ. I was um, pretty convinced at a young age, I, I grew up in a non-Christian home, I was pretty convinced at a, at a young age that there was a God, that God was worthy of being pursued. And as a young teenager, I found myself in church, gave my life to the Lord, and began this path towards knowing God. But it very much for me was an intellectual pursuit for a long time. And it wasn't really until I met my wife that I began to realize that there was something more than just an intellectual knowing God. I could actually love God. I could actually pursue God. But it's been a lifetime journey. And, and I don't know about your story, but my story is this. Sometimes I'm running hard after God, and sometimes I'm running hard away from God. Has that been your story, maybe? Sometimes it's passionate pursuit, and sometimes it's just sitting on the couch going... I just don't know that I really want this. Well, that's been kind of my story, but then I'm reminded, and I want us to start this morning by considering the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 9. There, this, is, this is my preaching Bible. I have a general rule about my preaching Bible. I don't write in it, but there are a few things that I box out, and, and there are two that are particularly meaningful, and I go back to readily when I, whenever I'm preaching, and they're both in Luke chapter 9. And the first one is in Luke 9, 23. Jesus says this. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. And then a few verses later in 9, verse 62, Jesus said this. He said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be my disciple, it will require denying yourself, taking up your cross, following. Should you do this and you put your hand to the plow to do the work of the kingdom, but then you look back, you're not fit for it. These are really intense teachings that Jesus gives us. This is no half-hearted, I'm going to sort of follow Jesus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm honest, I have put my hand to the plow and look back. Or I thought, I can't do this, it's too much, it's too profoundly difficult, I'm not holy enough, I don't desire this enough, and then I'm reminded of things that Jesus says like, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I, was, I remember as a teenager hearing that passage saying, I don't understand what Jesus eggs, 
being light and easy, the yolk of the egg. All right. But, and it wasn't until later that I realized he was talking about this plowing image of putting your hand to the plow, that we don't do this alone, but we do this as a work alongside him. And so as we get into Foster's words here in a minute, I think it's profound to recognize that when Foster calls us into these spiritual disciplines, he's not calling us into some solo process that you are alone journeying towards growing in Christ's likeness. He's saying, we are with Christ doing this work, doing this plowing work. Last week, we got the four upward disciplines. If you didn't get a chance to hear those, it's, it's foundational to a lot of what I'm going to say today. As Brian laid out, what are the spiritual disciplines? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that, um, but I do encourage you to go back and, and look at that. Um, today, we're going to look at the four inward disciplines, and then next week, Brian will be back up here, and he'll be focusing on those four corporate dis- disciplines, Lord willing. And, and I think it's important for us to remember that these are not a checklist. These are not a, th- not a list of like, okay, if I do these 12 things, then, then I'm, in, I'm going into heaven. No, no, these are, these are, Foster says, if you look at the historical Christian church, these are 12 principles or 12 um, practices that if you look at the church historically, we see these things that when God's people are committed to doing these things, we see a move of God, we see a holiness among God's people, we see a fervor for the things of God. And so he says, if we will put into practice these things, then we will begin to grasp God, much how Paul prayed for the Ephesians church, that we will grasp how wide and how deep and and how long the riches of God's great love is for us. And in doing so, we will be transformed and we will be a transforming people. We'll be changed as we encounter God and we will become a people who become change agents in the world. I'm, I'm just curious, do you want that? Is it? Do you, I, I want it. Do I always want it? No, <laughs> but I want to want it. And, and this week has been for me just a great challenge to jump back into some of these things that maybe I needed to even be refreshed on. I want to pray, and then I want to jump into the four inner disciplines this morning. Lord, we, we want to be a people who don't just sing the goodness and the greatness of God, but we want to be people who live it, who believe it, who are transformed by your love, by encountering you in a real and dynamic way. God, we can't do that on our own. We can't do enough things. We can't complete the lists. We can't even comprehend how, how wide or high or deep your love for us even is. But Lord, you say that, that you want us to put our hands to the plow, and you say that if we'll do that, we'll do it with you, and it will be easy, and it won't be a burden. And so God, as we dig into your word this morning, as we dig into these truths that foster points us to, God, I pray that you will meet us in this place, that you will draw us to yourself, that you will not let us leave here today unchanged. And we pray that in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. 
So this morning we're going through four disciplines. In my mind, it's four sermons. And so this morning I made sure I set an alarm to be done preaching no later than 11.50. And then I was telling my wife I'd set an alarm, and she said, what for? And I told her, and I said, and I set it for 11.50, and then it caught me. Oh, no, 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 that should be 10.50, right? But you guys don't mind, right? No, okay, good. The pastor said he didn't mind, so... uh, you got 101 and a meeting. Yeah, we better, we better wrap it up quicker. Well, as we go through these four, I'm just going to tell you there's a whole lot more meat than what I can, I can give you this morning. So we're doing a bit of a high flyover. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, I'm going to focus on some of them more than others. Not because some are more important than others, but mainly because they resonate with me and because I think, first of all, the first one we're going to talk about, I believe is pivotal to all of the other spiritual disciplines. If we can grasp this one, if we can apply this one, I think we'll find that the others kind of naturally fall out of that. And then uh, one of them I'm going to kind of fly a bit fast over because I think it can be quickly abused, and I just don't want to, I don't want to cover it. All right, is that fair to say? All right, just in the spirit of full honesty. So uh, let's jump into solitude. Solitude. I'm looking back here. I'm going, all right, I hadn't looked, turned around and looked here yet. So if you'll notice one thing, first of all, I didn't give you any of the scriptures this Sunday. You've got to do the hard work, pulling out your phone, going to your Bible app, or flipping in your Bibles. But uh, we're going to jump, go through those, so you may want to jump there now. But as we look at solitude, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a talker. I like, um, I like some noise, but I also am one of these people that do, do need a fair amount of peace and quiet. Um, I love having people in my home, but I also just love when they leave. Are you like that? Yeah, I I guess by the laughter, some of you are there. Um, In solitude, we get quiet, but we don't just get quiet for the sake of quiet. We get quiet so we can pull alone to be alone with God so that we can see and savor his love. And I'm wondering, when is the last time you have carved out a time to just encounter God? In Isaiah, verse 30, we read, Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. He's speaking to the Israelite people who've been in captivity. He says, And in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness, and in trust shall be your strength. And then he gives this interesting indictment. He says, but you are unwilling. You you need to pull away and enjoy the quietness of just being with the Lord. But My guess is some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to do that. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine this week. We were talking about what I'm preaching. One of the things I love to do before I preach is process my sermon with somebody. And we were talking about that passage right there. And he says, you know, Alan, one of the main reasons I am unwilling to turn the radio off in my car and be quiet with God is I'm afraid of what God will say to me. What will he say? What will he call you to? What will he challenge in your life? The Israelite people needed this. 
In Exodus chapter 33, verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. We read that. Far off from the camp, actually. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And when they wanted to encounter God, they got away from their houses. They went, or not houses, but their tents. And they went out to the tent of meeting where they met with God. In Genesis chapter 32, one of my favorite stories in the whole Old Testament, Jacob um, takes his entire family, sent them across to the stream, and everything else that he had, he left it all behind. Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And at this wrestling is where Jacob gets renamed Israel and becomes anointed by God to do this transforming work, only as he was alone and left everything behind. And in Mark chapter 6, Verse 31, we read this about Jesus rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark, Jesus departed. He went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Nine times, nine times in the Gospels, we read that Jesus left, went away from the crowd, went away from everybody else, and just got alone with God. And I'm thinking, if Jesus needs solitude, how much more do we? How much more do we? Now, if you're like me, you can sit in solitude in your living room scrolling through your phone. Yes? Or you can sit in solitude in your car driving down 501. But let me just tell you, that ain't, that ain't solitude. 501, there is no solitude on 501. Uh, Maybe 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. But that would be the only time. And hopefully that you're enjoying the solitude of your bed at that hour. There's no solitude scrolling through your phone. Because you're not encountering the living God. You're encountering whatever is, is on the gram or whatever you're scrolling through. And I'm just wondering, when, when is the last time we were alone with God? When is the last time we heard him speak to us, challenge us, and call us into this intimate relationship where we just talk one-on-one? Probably more his talking and our listening. And how do we practically do that? Well, If you're a mom of young children, give up. You got about 10 years before you can get it again. (laughs) Not true, but it may feel that way. For some of you, it's going to be, in order for you to find solitude, you're going to have to steal moments of solitude in the day. It might be getting up a half hour early, or it might be just, I'm going to shut the door, and I'm going to pop in some noise-canceling headphones, and I'm just going to just focus on God and his word. I just want to hear from God. For others of you, it may be staying up an hour late so that you can just be in God's word and just sit in his presence before you go to bed after the house is quiet. If you're like me, you're going to have to put the phone down in another room to do that because that's always there as a temptation. Or if you really want to step it up, I I learned a couple months ago um, down in Monk's Corner, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right, South Carolina, about two hours drive from here, there's a monastery. And you can go to this monastery. You can look it up. It's uh, called the Mepkin Abbey. And you can live there. You can stay there. You can't live there. Well, you could live there. You just have to become a monk first. Uh, They have information on their website about how to do that. Um, That's like the ultimate, right? Or you could do a monastery stay where you go and you take a vow of silence and you spend a couple of days Or you could drive down, like I said, it's about a two-hour drive, spend a couple of hours, 
and just be alone in the gardens with the Lord. Now, in my mind, that's the best of all the options because the, it's just, it's easy in a sense. Maybe Brook Green Gardens is a great place for you to go to find some solitude or, or maybe it's just walking around in the woods somewhere. But, but the goal is, is really not even to get alone and to get quiet. The goal is to get Jesus, right? To encounter God, to find a time where we can really get to know him and spend time with him. And I am thoroughly convinced that if we will do this one discipline, it will open the door to all the rest. That's, that's my personal conviction. And that's my conviction because that's been my experience. For me, I, I have found when I get alone hiking on the Appalachian Trail, there is no place where I encounter God better. And it moves me into the second one we're going to talk about is simplicity. And I'm going to wrap myself out a little bit here. In my pursuit for solitude, I decided that I would go spend ballpark $1,000 on some hiking equipment. Um, but, but what's funny is <laughs> um, Foster talks about solitude and then he talks about simplicity and then you know, I come back to it. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to skip that chapter on Foster. We'll come back to that one later. Um, I, I almost brought up here this morning all of my hiking gear to, to almost mock my, my pursuit of solitude through a lack of simplicity. But... Um, <laughs> It's enough to just say we all struggle in many ways, right? Um, you included. So you, your laughter, you're just a, laughing with me, right? Not at me, yeah. So if solitude, in solitude, we are freed from, from the distractions of this world. We're free from people. We're free from all of the devices that keep us um, bound to people. We're just encountering God. In simplicity, we're liberating ourselves. We're finding freedom, not from people so much as we're finding freedom from things, freedom from the trappings of this world. And I, I got to thinking this week about uh, Marie, Marie Kondo. I'm not, am I saying that name right? Um, she, she talks about um, conmaring your house. I'm not even sure if I'm using that word right, where you go through and you're like, does this, does this spark joy in my life? And if not, get rid of it. That, that's her big thing. Does this spark joy? And if not, get rid of it. And, and eventually just get rid of more and more and more things so that you have less stuff that's trapping you and holding you down to this world. Now, that is not a biblical pursuit of simplicity. God's desire is not for you to get rid of your stuff and become a minimalist and buy a tiny house and live off grid. Now, that to me is great joy. I would love to do that. I'm married to the opposite of that. And so I, I choose Joy, which is my wife's middle name, and, and, and we have a house, and it's a big house, and we have stuff, and, and I, on occasion, will Konmari the house when she's not home, and she doesn't know what goes away sometimes. Um, occasionally, she'll go, whatever happened to such and such? I'm like, oh, I think I gave that to somebody, um, and then we just keep on moving. But the question we have to wrestle with when it comes to simplicity is, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Because if Jesus isn't enough, you will have to get more and more things, do more and more things, experience more and more things in order to try to fill the void in your life. I know Christians who spend their entire lives in vacation mode. 
I'm always thinking about my next vacation, where I'm going to go, what place I haven't been to, what food I haven't tried. Why would we pursue that so vigorously unless God isn't enough? I'm not saying to go on vacation. I love to travel. But if we are constantly pursuing, I need to go one more place. I need to buy one more thing. Um, that's, it's probably an indicator that there's something in us that isn't quite in tune. And I would suggest that it's that we are not living with a simplicity that says God is enough. Uh, and maybe it's uh, constantly um, HGTV in your house or maybe it's constantly trying to get your kid in another sport, another activity. You need the latest phone. I, I walked into a, a, a meeting here once, and, and um, I'm going to rat our pastor out, and I pulled out my um, non-Apple computer and was mocked for it. <laughs> I'm using an Apple device this morning because it's my wife's. It's my wife's. And, um, <laughs> and, and I got to thinking, like, what is it that compels us to constantly need the newest phone? To constantly need the newest car? To completely gut and remodel another room that we just gutted and remodeled five years ago? If I'm stepping on toes, I'm not sorry. I love you. And I have the same challenge Things of this world. Remember that old hymn, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I'm wondering if we need to turn our eyes more to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches, saying, no one can serve two masters, Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can anyone of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day, and I think if he came back today to the American church, I think he would do the same. I did a funeral a couple weeks ago for a gentleman. I was actually with him when he died. He was able to, because of his disease, he was able to pretty much determine when his last day would be. It was a beautiful home going. Um, as he went to be with the Lord, he was singing praises and just declaring God's goodness. The last words out of his mouth were all about Jesus. It was awesome. As I sat down with his wife and, and kids, and we were talking about his life and everything in his life prior to um, the time I knew him, one of the things his wife commented on was how it was going to take her several weeks just to go through his shirts. She said he, he probably had over 200 shirts. Half of them still have tags on them. She's like, you should see his flip-flop and shorts collection. <laughs> and in no way to discount this man, because I believe he did love Jesus, I wonder if he had spent 
some of that money and some of that time shopping, investing in kingdom pursuits, what kind of impact would he have left even greater than he did? I find it almost an eerie truth that we print on our money and God we trust. (laughs) But do we? When we spend our lives pursuing money and things and things that our money can get us. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to trust him, to trust him alone, to make him our chief pursuit. In 1 Timothy 6, we're warned that if we desire to be rich, we'll fall in temptation, a temptation that can ruin our lives and lead to destruction. I think the American church needs to be reminded of that again and again and again. We are to seek first, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things, he'll provide for you. We don't have to run hard after all of these things I think it may start with us doing some Marie Kondoing work in our lives, saying, you know what, I need to eliminate some of the stuff in my life. But remember, the goal isn't to get rid of stuff. The goal is to get God. The goal is to pursue him, that he becomes our chief joy, not these things. G.K. Chesterton, um, he said this, and I, I think it's brilliant. He says, there are, there are only two ways to get enough. One is to continue to get more and more. And two is to desire less. For some of us, we need to figure out how to desire less. And I can only encourage you to begin asking God to show you the truth about what you really love. Pray for him to show you and expose to you what is real about where your heart's desire is. It may be risky, but maybe ask somebody, not somebody richer than you who has more than you, but somebody who maybe lives simply and say, can you help me? to reorient my life on this because I feel like I may be out of step with what God's called me to. Foster challenges us to think more strategically about how we spend our money. He says, ask yourself, is this going to really last? Does this have value beyond just this moment? Is this what God wants for me? Does it distract me? Does it create an addiction in me? Is it unnecessary? Does it contribute to my debt? Does it cause harm to others to produce it? And if so, you probably shouldn't be buying it. And if we take this approach to life, much like my my friend who I did his funeral recently, I think we would have a much greater impact in this world than we ever imagined we could have. Practicing simplicity is going to be a challenge for us if we have held tightly for a long time to our things. But if we will hold more tightly to Christ's hand, we won't find that we can hold as tightly to the things of this world. The third discipline is is the discipline of submission. With simplicity, I lay down things. With submission, I lay down myself. I got to thinking on the subject of submission um, about how many countless church meetings I've been in. Have you ever had the joy or pain of sitting in church board meetings, deacons meetings, elders meetings? 
Have you ever been in one of those where somebody came in? This is dangerous. Okay, I've never sat in a meeting here, okay, like that. So I don't know any, I have no history. Can I just say that right now? There is no history. Nobody's told me a thing, all right? So do not, don't be looking, okay, going, ah. But have you ever walked in? I I got stories from other places, all right, with other people. Not you. It never happened here. I say that. I know this would never happen here. That's where we start this. But I know some churches, it seems like people come in sometimes with agendas, And there's no spirit of submission. There's my way or the highway. I I have to tell you this funny story about a pastor that I served under once. He was a lead pastor, and the church was having a conversation about reflooring the fellowship hall. And the decision was made, because the the fellowship hall had carpet, and it was covered in stains from food and drinks, but the decision was made to switch over to industrial tile. I was there in the meeting. I was in the office the next week, while, and the pastor agreed in the meeting. He didn't like the idea of, of putting more carpet. He wanted... No, he didn't like the idea of the industrial hall. He wanted carpet because he said the carpet dampened the sound. It was going to be too loud, yada, yada, yada. And so then the next week, because he agreed to call the flooring company and tell them to come in and put that industrial tile. And I was in the office when he called them. And he says, hey, yeah, this is so-and-so at such-and-such church. And we want to go ahead and get that carpet put in. And I, when he was done with his phone call, I was in my, I was like 19, 20 years old. I was a youth pastor in this church. And I, I went, I was, I was young and kind of um, um, fearless. And I went into his office and I said, um, you just did the wrong thing. And in all seriousness, his response to me was, Alan, you will learn when you get older and wiser that sometimes the best thing is not to ask permission, but to ask forgiveness. And I've looked in that, for my, that in my Bible so many times. <laughs> and I cannot find it. But what I do find, 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Woo! Can you imagine if everybody walked into a church meeting saying, today, tonight, my job is to honor everyone in this room. Can you imagine how long those meetings would be? No, no, no. Whatever you want to do. I don't, need to, I don't need to have a say on this. It doesn't really matter what I want. No, what do you want? No, no, no. I don't want to say what I want. Whatever you want. No, no, no. Pastor, what do you want? The pastor's no, no, no. I don't really have an opinion on this. I think we should just trust the Lord. The Lord's going to give us wisdom. Can you imagine how beautiful and awful that meeting could be? Yeah. But, but how much more awful is the meeting where everybody comes with their opinion and they lock in corners? And there's no submission In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the Philippian church, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not just what makes me happy, but what is going to benefit others. In Ephesians, Paul says to the Ephesians church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we submit, when we live a life of submission, it's no longer about a power grab. It's no longer about me getting my way. I release the need to have my way or the highway. I'm not in control anymore. Christ is in control, and I submit to you out of, not because I think you're the smartest person in the room, because oftentimes I think I am, if I'm honest, or my opinion like, is better than yours. I, I, I saw a shirt years ago that says, you had the right to my own opinion. And I thought, you know, my wife could wear that shirt. And, uh, and then I realized, no, <laughs> I could wear that shirt. And, uh, and she could too. Um, 
But I think we all could sometimes, couldn't we? We oftentimes have our opinions and we think it's the best opinion. Otherwise, we wouldn't hold it. But if we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, we are willing to let go of our way, our opinion, and we are going to seek to do things God's way. Jesus does this so beautifully when he prays before going to the cross and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. God, I really want this to happen, but not my will, your will be done, God. You could start this week at work, figuring out how you can submit. Oh, you may not like your boss's policy on X, Y, Z. Submit to it anyways. It's not sinful, it's just annoying. I, I work for a company, I, I get that. You could submit this week to God's word by not just reading it, but actually acting on what God's called you to do. You could submit to your family by <clears throat> helping out with chores, Jay, <clears throat> that you would not normally do or want to do. You could submit to a neighbor by raking their leaves. And not just because you think their yard is bringing yours down. Mm, That's not submission. That's pride. But just out of love for your neighbor. And this leads to, I think, kind of naturally the last of these four that we're looking at today. The inward discipline of service. In John chapter 13, we read this about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he had finished washing the disciples' feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done? He asked them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. What was the point? The point was this. Jesus is going to the cross to give up his life, to take on the sin of the world so that these disciples could have eternal life, so that we sitting here could have eternal life. And he says, and before I go, I want you to see that I am not above you. I'm here to serve you and to show you through this act of love how much I care for you. So often those who do not serve don't serve because they don't also submit. I want to share a story about a couple that demonstrated, I think, this act of service better than anybody I've ever seen in my entire life. Their name was Bob and Marjorie Warden. Bob and Marjorie are in the presence of Jesus today, dancing it up, singing it up in heaven. They were probably in their early to mid-80s, I would guess, when we first met them. Marjorie had had cancer on her face, and she lost vision in one eye. She wore these glasses where one eye was darkened so you couldn't see that she didn't have an eye. And her husband, Bob, had dementia. He was pleasantly confused. He was very compliant. He was, you know, I work with people with dementia every day, and I know there's different types of dementia. His was kind of the easier one, I guess, of them all. But at that time in my life, Angela and I, we had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, And I was working as a youth pastor in a church. And whenever we had youth group, there wasn't anything for children in the church. And so we would just take our kids with us. And Marjorie came to us one day, or came to Angela one day, and said, I would like 
to, for Bob and I to come over to your house during youth group and babysit your kids. The one-eyed lady and the demented guy. <laughs> this is going to work. And it did. It absolutely did. Every week they would show up at our house, and my kids loved them. And they would babysit our kids, and it freed us up to do ministry that we wouldn't have been able to do the same way without their service. And what's crazy is on top of that, midweek, during the day, you would see them shuffling around the church, sharpening pencils, straightening the, the hymnals and the Bibles in the back of the pews, picking up little candy trash. You know, people shove candy in those little pockets, the candy stashing pockets. They would collect the trash out of there. They would walk through the kids' Sunday school rooms and they would straighten the chairs and they would clean the marker boards and they would do all of these insignificant things. These 80-some-year-old people who could have just declared, I did my time. But instead, they wanted to serve. They lived with this foot-washing mentality and, I, and I, I just wonder, when we have a God who so loved the world that he gave, how could we not do the same? And I recognize that as we get older, as things get more challenging, sometimes we wonder, like, how can I serve? How can I use my gifts in the church? And I would just say, think of Bob and Marjorie. The other challenge, I think, to our serving oftentimes is that we have so much finances available to us, we say, you know what, I'm not going to serve, but here's some money. And I want to challenge that. Because I think there's something beautiful. I, I moved recently from Laurel Street to Elm Street. It was a huge move. Um, <laughs> it was actually a hard move in many respects. But it was made so much easier by, by folks right here in this church who showed up at our house and helped carry things. And whose backs I know hurt the next day. We need to not just give money to it, we need to give ourselves to it, to bear one another's burdens, to spend time with people long enough to actually find out what their needs are so that we can serve, to show up at the church midweek and sharpen, I don't know, do we even have pencils to sharpen here? Is that even a thing anymore? Do we find something? I don't know about you, there's a lot in there to chew on. And I got to thinking in the course of a year, you're going to listen to roughly 50 sermons. And the easy thing is to hear one and go home and have lunch, maybe have roast preacher, if that's what you have for Sunday lunch. Make it about Brian. I'm just passing through. Um, no. <laughs> but I wonder, what would it look like if we actually said, you know what, this week I'm going to practice some solitude. I'm going to ask God, what will it what will it actually mean for me, Jesus, to get serious about simplifying my life so that you are number one? God, is there some submitting I need to do the next time I walk into a room? God, how do you want me to serve? Can you imagine if we became the church that actually did all of that? And we were the people who were like living deeply in love with Jesus how compelling this place would be. You wouldn't be, able to, you wouldn't be able to get them all in the doors because they would see there's something radically different here. That's what I want to be about. I'm not going to be perfect at it.
just like you're not going to be. But that's something we need to pursue. Because Jesus has called us to be those who deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, and don't look back. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't know how to do all this. But you said that if we will take your yoke upon us, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And so, Jesus, we step into the yoke with you. And we ask that you would help us to become a people who are marked by a life of spiritual disciplines that make us fall more madly in love with you than we've ever been. To become people who serve and love and demonstrate a passion for you like nothing else. And we're going to need your help to do that. But we trust you. And we know you love us. And we know that you will guide us each step of the way. God, I pray for us as a church family that we will this week find opportunities for solitude to encounter you, to listen to you, to fall more in love with you, and to be changed by you. Amen.